uh, listeners, um, every so often I will tell you a, a little secret that this next author, cookbook author that we're going to be talking to, Alexandra Grappanzano, is actually a joy to read because the writing is so splendid throughout all of her books. And this current one is called Gâteau, uh, The Surprising Simplicity of French Cakes. And I'm sure called Gâteau, you're not expecting it to be about both bourguignon. <laughs> right. Okay. Welcome, Alexandra. I'm so glad you're going to demystify this for us. Because I, <laughs> I, 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 the, the last thing I would have said about French dessert cooking is that it's simple. You know, well, I, I think I, I agree. I think that uh, French French baking, French patisserie is usually conceived of as these incredibly intricate, ornate, uh, fantastic uh, complex things that you buy at a patisserie. And I love those. I absolutely love those. I used to spend years as a child taking my dog for a walk and, and just going by every single window of every single patisserie nearby and uh, and just staring. <laughs> but, I, but what I have discovered having lived there is that when you actually are, you know, when you become kind of an extended part of a family or a close friend of somebody particularly Parisian, what you find is that they they really do bake at home, and when they bake at home, they bake very, very simply. And and they usually bake from, from the real classics. These are cakes that have been around some since the Middle Ages that have stood the test of time, really, really well-structured cakes. By that, I mean cakes that, that have a, uh, a, a formula that, that works, that is... Um, and and then on top of that, they will riff. They will just they will play with whatever is in season, and whatever is in their pantry, whatever they're cooking with. They'll add spices. They'll add fruit. They'll add all sorts of things. And so it's really about having basic basic recipes that you can absolutely count on, and then being able to play with them. And so that's that is why I say they're simple. They really are simple. They take less than fifteen minutes usually to whip up. Well, you you give lots and lots of variations um, and possibilities in, in your book for these recipes, which I appreciate. And also, you you say things, you give tips that are really news to me. I'm trying to remember what they are, but they, but there are yes. certain tips you give that I just never thought about. You know, there are you know I learned so many great tricks. I mean, one of the tricks that I love. I guess it's not really a trick, but let's call it one, is is that the French will use a lot of booze. They will lose, use a lot of liquor, a lot of, their, they use cognac, they use armagnac, um, they will use cognac, oh, yeah. they will use calvados, I mean, on and on and on, to, to really boost flavor in a way that is so easy. I mean, it's as simple as adding, you know, a tablespoon of something fabulous to a batter or adding a tablespoon of whatever it is to a soaking syrup and brushing it on a warm cake, and suddenly you elevate a cake from a, from a delicious, but, but let's say not necessarily highly nuanced cake into something that is really, really sophisticated and has, and has depth and layers of flavor. Yeah, um, you have a whole chapter called Spirits. And, and when, uh-huh. I, when I read that, it reminded me that for years... We kept a bottle of um, dark rum in the liquor mm-hmm. cabinet. Not that we ever drank it, mind you, but it was the essential ingredient in my wild mushroom soup and also in my rum cake, I mean my rum pie. Of course, <laughs> of course. And, yeah. you know, and I, I'm, I absolutely, rum is used, particularly dark rum. In fact, I think pretty much only dark rum is used in France, I would say, as much as, as vanilla extract. It is really, it is used to give that extra depth to any sort of cake. I mean, even yogurt cakes and, you know, very simple weekend cakes, pound cakes, um, obviously, you know, the famous Baba rum, which is so delicious, uh, is, you know, it's pretty much drenched in rum. Uh, but yeah. it, it is. And then, you know, this, you know, in apple season, you'll see bottles of Calvados. You will see 
Um, come winter, you'll see Armagnac to go with anything with prunes or with chestnuts, absolutely incredible combinations. So really kind of every, and then obviously in the spring and summer, maybe you'll see a creme de cassis or a creme de framboise or, um, you know, even they borrow sometimes from the Italians and use a limoncello uh, when baking. So it's, it is just part of, it's part of the French pantry. Liquor is part of the French pantry, just in savory as well as sweet. As you know, I mean, when, you, when you're cooking, you know, let's say, you know, almost any sort of meat in France, you'll use, usually deglaze the pan with a little bit of, of, um, of wine or, or, or uh, spirits. And it's, mm-hmm. um, it is, again, it's getting that, that extra kind of rich, nuanced, sophisticated note very, very simply. Now, I mean, th- these, your recipes are simple, but they're not, um, um, they're not, um, Simpleton, if you know what I mean. I mean, yeah, they have a lot of nuanced flavors. How, how hard do you work on getting the the ingredients and techniques simplified, but still maintaining that layering of flavor and that sophistication and nuance in them? What a great question. You know, I don't do anything to do that because, uh, you know, these. I, it's really that I choose recipes that are that that do fit that model that are meant for home cooks that are that are simple but are not you know plain vanilla plain chocolate you know cream skull that they that they're they are they're cakes that have um, how can I say this complexity to their flavor but not to the process and and that is that to me was what was so exciting about these French cakes and I you know, I love American cakes. Um, I don't. I don't think that the primary intention of American cakes is for that sophistication. I think the primary intent of American cakes is often for sugar. You know, that it that it's, it's something sweet. It's something with a lot of icing. It's incredibly well decorated, or you know, or the beauty of a very simple pound cake. Um, the French are really looking for uh, strong flavor profiles, but simply, simply baked. And I think that that, that is really, to me, parallels, again, what, what the French do so well when they're cooking at home, which is they will, they'll use good ingredients, they'll cook things they have, that have recipes that have been around for generations and are beloved and stood the test of time. And it'll really be about showcasing the ingredients. And so not you know, not overly fussy, not overly decorating, um, but having the confidence to let to let those ingredients speak for themselves. Yeah, now, you, you speak to the importance of butter, and you have a lot of good things, interesting things to say about butter, particularly French butter. Tell our listeners yeah. something about... I was shocked at the, um, uh, the, the content of <laughs> butter fat in some of, the, of these butters. It's incredible. And, you know, so when you go into a, well, let's say you're in Brittany or Normandy, which are the two kind of great regions of dairy um, and, of you know, of, of butter, of creme fraiche, of, of all of those, and you go into a, a, little, a little dairy or a cheese shop, you will sometimes see 10 different kinds of butter, all in these yes. big kind of vats. And it's so much fun because, you, you know, you don't, you don't just go in and pull off that, you know, that stick of butter. Instead, you, you, you know, you say, I'm going to be cooking this or I'm going to be baking this. Um, <laughs> and you, the shop people, will recommend which butter fits that. And um, so, but, but to, to kind of get down to brass tacks, American butter tends to be um, only around 81 to 84% butter fat. Um, and French or European style butters, as they're often called here, um, are much higher. And, and even a, a, a pastry butter in France can go all the way up to 99% butter, but that's really just used by professionals. But the difference, I think, really is, is that you, you know, when you, the other side of, of that is that the, you know, if something is, let's say, 80% butterfat, then it means it's 20% water. And so the higher the butterfat content, the less yeah, water that's, you get. Yeah, that surprised actually, me. Yeah, that, I mean, that, the high water content of American butters really surprised me. 
And I did a whole I article know. on cultured butter, and I never realized what was <laughs> what was added in was the water. It is right. Where, where, where was where was it that we saw somebody whose menu proclaimed that they used English butter? Who, who oh yeah, that? we did see that yeah, English butter. English, English butter, Irish butter, Scottish butter. I mean, all now Irish butter is famous. Yeah, is famous. But it's famous. I, and I always and tell my favorite Disney um, the bird Disney the. Um, do you know that that's the origin of the surname Disney? Really? I did not yes. know that. I didn't either until I read it. And I, was, I oh, tell everybody I talk to about it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's kind of um, one of those little known things. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> well, you can spread the word from here on. <laughs> oh, good. I will, actually. It's kind of this great piece of history. It's one of those, yes. I, I, I love little details like that. Yeah. Now, your, your, your book is special for an entirely different reason, I think. Let me just preface my, re- my remarks about that by saying that not, not too long ago, a few years ago, we we stayed in Paris at the Paris Hilton, right right across from the Eiffel Tower, which linked in our window all through the night. Mm. But we particularly enjoyed walking the streets of the Rue Claire and around it. Oh right, because, right. Yeah. Because the, because there there was so much wonderful food of of every description, not just patisseries and boucheries, but Everything. lots and lots of other things as well. But then just within the last year, somebody told us that Fauchon and Ediard Oh, yeah, it closed. Two, two fabulous patisseries, uh, etc., which face one another across the Place Madeleine. So they had both closed. And I thought, oh, my mm-hmm. God, the world, the world is coming to an end. But for, Fauchon but fortunately, has, Fauchon fortunately, has you, not closed. Oh, it's not? Yeah. Okay. Fauchon has what? Fauchon has not closed. I think Ediar um, uh, now sells, uh, you, you can buy Ediar products at, say, the Bon Marché and, and other places, but I, I'm not sure they're still in that location, which is terribly sad. And they, they used to be in the Hudu Bac right near me as well, and they, they closed that. Um, but I, th- I think so many places did not make it through the pandemic, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean they won't reappear. Um, well, it also it also makes your makes your book book even even more important because you have a place to go other than a straight patisserie by saying you can create this for yourself. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. And the, and the Rue Claire, the Rue Claire is one of my favorite little spots. It's it's very close to one of my best friends, and uh, and we will meet on one end or the other. And, uh, and it's just it's impossible not to spend hours there. I mean, the, the honey shop is incredible, and you know, and there's there are ice cream shops and cheese shops and incredible butchers and fantastic florists, and I mean, it's just it's it's everything. Yeah, you just don't find that everywhere. I mean, it's one of those things that makes that particular area of Paris is special, and, and, or Paris and, is special for that. And, and let, let, let's not forget birds, game birds with feathers still on. With the feathers on. Yes, yes, <laughs> no, they can't do that anymore, can they? I thought the EU finished that. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's paying that much attention to those details. <laughs> I think they, uh, but there are great wine shops there, too, and there's a, you know, there's a, a store that is entirely, uh, I mean, there's a cookie shop, but there's another one that's entirely about creme chantilly. So it's all, it's just all whipped cream things. And it's, you know, <laughs> only in Paris can you have a, a shop that is only about whipped cream. Exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. No, no the, one of the things I learned in, from your book, too, is, I mean, I didn't think about it, is um, Paris has really opened itself up to ingredients and recipes from other countries like the Middle East and you know that it, it, it it's not just all French anymore yeah. there uh, yeah I you know it's it, that is 
in some ways recent and in some ways not. And you know, when I when I started really looking at the history, because you know, one of the one of the great things about writing this book for me was, you know, I'm a, I am a a total history buff, so I I actually really love going back and. I, I didn't want Ghetto to feel like a heavily researched book. I wanted it to read lightly, but it is extensively researched. And you know, and one of the things I discovered is, you know, we, you know, we kind of think that rose water and orange blossom water, and oh, yeah. you know, the, the flavors that you know we now link with Yotamata Lenge and and um, you know, Middle Eastern cooking, Israeli cooking, North African cooking is is something new. But in fact. Those have been around for so, so, so long. And, and rose water and orange blossom water were used long before vanilla. Uh, and almond flour was used extensively in the Middle Ages. So, so, I'm, so in a funny way, um, I think we're, we're discovering things that have come right. But, um, but I, what I have noticed in Paris recently is that, is that French recipes are, are actually now also making use of these different ingredients in a way that they hadn't been. So that, for example, there are wonderful places to get couscous in Paris, but you wouldn't necessarily see a Ras al-Hanout, the Moroccan spice mix that goes in couscous in a French dish, and, and definitely not a French cake. And, oh, now, right. now, you, and now you will. So it's, so it's really kind of, um, it's not just an opening of the borders, but it's, it's kind of an opening of, of culinary tradition, which I love. And I, you know, but it's, um, it's done, it's, it's, it's done when it fits, you know, and I, um, I like that. It's, yes, that's, you might... that's rational. That's very French, isn't it? <laughs> yes. yes. It yes. makes sense. <laughs> Practical. Exactly. Practical. Very... They're not going to just uh, yes. They're not doing it just to do it, do it. They're doing it when it when it works. There's a lot of Japanese influence in Paris right now. There's a lot of, of yuzu juice. Um, and yeah, you have a there. recipe for yuzu in here, and you say it's. What did you say about it? it was the most intensely something yuzu. fragrant. You know, I think it's almost fragrant, in the way that yeah. bergamot is. It has that. Right. Extraordinary fragrance, and I, I'm seeing it actually in perfumes as well now. It's just, it's got a, it's got that wonderful kind of citrus, tart um, freshness to it. But then it has an, another dimension, which is a, a very kind of sensual perfume to it. It's just extraordinary, and I, I absolutely love, I love baking with it, and I will, I will use it. Can you get the often. fresh fruit in Paris? Because I don't think uh, you, you know, can get it here. No, you know, there are a couple places down south in France where you can get it um, along the Mediterranean, you know, bergamot, yuzu, certain other citrus can grow that is a little, that really does require um, warmer climate. I've always wondered why nobody in California makes it, or I shouldn't yeah, say I makes it. Yeah, I don't know why. It's really funny. They... It was they were growing something funny, ginger, I think, someplace in California. Right. It's not that. It's not certainly isn't harder than you know key lime or you know uh, Meyer lemons or mandarins. But it is it is it is really delicious. I have never actually cooked with fresh yuzu or baked with fresh yuzu. I, I buy the the pure concentrate. Yeah, I mean, and, I've never seen uh, it available. So no. Now, I mentioned you, you when we were talking before about. Um, the chocoholics are going to be in seventh heaven because you have an entire chapter on chocolate cake. I mean, I didn't know there would be so many variations of chocolate cake. Oh, you know it, that I could have. I I might have to write a book about chocolate. I love chocolate, and and Parisians love chocolate. I mean, they, you know, walk down, take a walk in Paris, and I and I would guarantee that within. The first five streets, five blocks, you will find a really fantastic <laughs> chocolate shop. And, you know, another five streets later, there'll be another one. And, I mean, you know, streets like the, the Rue du Bac maybe have six great chocolate shops on them. Uh, likewise, the Rue Bonaparte. Um, so it is, you know, it is really, a, the French just do love chocolate. And they love dark chocolate in particular. And they love their cakes to be, me too, and they love their cakes to be um, 
rich but not overly sweet, not overly fudgy. See, that's um, what, you said they don't like fudge, and I can believe that. Yeah. They but do they, not they, like... they, they love brownies now. They have a name, and, and use an English name for brownies, right? They do. I almost put a brownie recipe in the book that, that, that a French friend makes, <laughs> but I, I, uh, I didn't. And they love, you know, they love chocolate chip cookies, and, and there are yeah, a lot of chocolate chip cookies right. in Paris, too. But, but, you know, the chocolate is interesting because they do, you know, there's that classic flourless chocolate cake, which I think comes from France, and then they do cakes that have just a little bit of, of flour. Sometimes they are just pure chocolate. Sometimes they, they add a little noisette uh, hazelnut. Sometimes they will uh, add a little, a little raspberry or a little ginger or very often a little candied orange. Sometimes they'll make a molten chocolate cake or a, a marquise or, I mean, there's, there are just so many different, uh, you know, they'll do a chocolate genoise and do a, a layer cake or a bouche de noel in chocolate. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And yeah, and I, 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 I was thinking about this the other day because the chocolate chapter is one of my favorites. And then I realized that I, I think I have chocolate in every chapter, at least one recipe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so clearly, clearly reflect. Yeah, you, you have, by the way, the listeners, the, um, the, one of the magical things about the book or the stories, she's a good storyteller too, the stories associated with the recipes. Uh, tell us about, is it Betsy Cake? The Basque, is that the? No, Bestie, I mean Betsy, the, the woman, the name of the cake. Oh, have to find Susie. Is that Susie. the Susie cake, the French? The French, Susie. oh, the Susie cake. Susie Bessie's cake. pretty yeah. good name, too. We're to dream up I a cake we for that one. I think cake with that name. Absolutely. We can always, <laughs> we can always create one. Uh, the Susie cake is great. Uh, Dory actually has written about that, too. It's, been, it's, it's a cake that's all over the news in France very often. It was, it was the invention, actually, of a, of a model whose name was Susie. And people loved her cake so much, her chocolate cake, that they said, you know, I bet, I bet Pierre Hermé, who's the, of course the, you know, one of the <laughs> chocolate patissiers in, in the world. I mean, he also bakes all sorts of things, but that's in particular. He's he's well known for chocolate too. Uh, declared it the best chocolate cake he had ever had, and so suddenly it took on a, you know, it it just took on a different. Um, layer of fame as soon as that happened and and it became something that you can almost find all over I mean it to me it reminds me a little bit of the nemesis cake in in London the Ruthie Rogers cake um, from the River Cafe it's a it's a cake that's copied all over all over Paris um, all over the nemesis is copied all over London yeah now um, you you have um, also a chapter, well, not a chapter, yeah, I guess it's a chapter, of um, savory cakes. Now, I mean, only sweet tooth people out there probably aren't looking for this, but I love savory cakes, especially when you say it makes good picnic food. And we had a family recipe for one of these loaves, bread loaves, that was a complete meal, and it was so useful for picnics or school lunches for the whole thing. Tell us about your savory things. You, you know, savory the savory cakes cake is something I've always loved, and I will say that over the pandemic, they saved me because I, I hate making lunch. I'm really a, a dinner person <laughs> or a breakfast or a tea person, but I'm not a lunch person. And these, these are fantastically practical because what they really are is they're everything that you love in a sandwich rolled into a batter. So... Obviously, there's no sugar in them, or maybe there can be a tiny touch, but basically, they they are not sweet. They're quick loaf cakes. They're made in a loaf pan. And they're and, like a complete meal. I mean, you know. And the, they're a complete meal. So yeah. absolutely, you could add ham, you can add cheese, you could you could do uh, Gruyere and French ham, you could do Roquefort, um, and um, you could do little bacon lardons, you can add... Um, any kind of sausage, you can add spinach, you can add, I mean, you really can add anything that you might want to. I love, there's a recipe I really love for a caprese salad, uh, made, kind of made into a cake that's Nathan, wonderful. That's great. 
with you know tomatoes, basil, yes. mozzarella, and olive oil in a cake. And you can have them have for it. lunch. You can have them on picnics. You can take them on the train. You can have them with an cheese. <laughs> They're perfect. Now, yeah. you, tell our listeners about. I always got a I got a kick out of this chapter called "The Chic, Delicious, and Playful." Uh-huh. You know, I, <laughs> it's it's not the most precise title for a chapter, I will say, but, but I thought it was you know, fun. Are, it's fun. There are these really great, you know, recipes that that kind of, you know, like the the jacquoise, which is layers of, of meringue that uh-huh. um, sandwich, maybe a buttercream, maybe a mousse, maybe some fruit, some jam, some chantilly. They're, they are uh, almost, if you were to imagine a pavlova bean, an actual layer cake. Yeah, that and, was bold of, brave of you to put a recipe for pavlova in because it's so temperature and humidity sensitive. The same recipe won't work <laughs> from one house to the next. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, my, I always find that the trick to that is simply if you leave meringue in the oven after you finish baking it um, and just you know, however you, you long you cook it, you just you do want it to dry up a little bit so that it doesn't absorb humidity. And I find that if you do that, you can you can pretty much make them anywhere and they'll work. Um, but the wonderful thing about meringues is that it's really hard to go wrong in that they always taste good. So so even <laughs> if they're a little bit moist or a little bit dry, they they will still be fantastic, especially with a lot of whipped cream. I, I served one for lunch once uh, with guests, and one of the guests commented that it's the only dessert she ever had where she needed a steak knife to cut it. <laughs> it did not work. No, I can tell. I can tell. My recipe will, will work, I promise. Um, and, the, you know, the fun thing about this is that you can literally to kind of smash it up and make an eaten mess. Exactly. Well. <laughs> so you could you it's really that that very same principle of an eat mess, a pavlova, a daquas. It's 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 different um okay. different forms, but I think it's really fun and playful to have this kind of stack yeah. of meringues uh yeah. that are filled with Oh I love I love I love we we lived in Australia and I love the pavlovas. That same recipe doesn't work in in the States, but anyhow. Um you have special occasion cakes. Uh, listeners, if you want to know how to make king's cake, you've got a recipe here. Um, you, you've got um, a, a, a oh. chapter that's really uh, fun. And what's it, let me, I want to read it exactly here. Okay, this is the title of the chapter. To soak, to sauce, to coat, to fill, to ice, to drizzle, to spoon, to glaze, and perchance to dollop. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's pretty much everything. I I could not, you know, I I want I wanted people to just feel playful with this book too because, you know, I think people are scared of baking and baking is in fact not that hard and really fun and and makes people happy. But the, what I that chapter is is I think incredibly useful because the French do they will make a lot of coulis a little raspberry coulis, which is so simple. It's just you literally blend, you know, a 12-ounce packet, say, of frozen raspberries, um, maybe with a little lemon juice or a little creme de cassis, maybe a little sugar if they're not that sweet, and you get this wonderful kind of uh, sauce that you could drizzle on a pavlova, you can drizzle on a cake, you could put a piece of chocolate cake on top of it. I mean, they do, they tend to do things like that that are, again, very, very simple, not time-consuming, very practical in that they use ingredients you have at home mostly, and and yet suddenly elevate something very simply into um, something that that seems much more refined, um, and you know, and I think more these the, the these cakes will end up people people assume that they're harder to make than they are when they taste them. They, because they're good, there's an assumption that it must be very difficult. And so I really wanted to, to kind of debunk that now as well. Well, yeah, um, you did that. I mean, everything and, has a dollop of creme fraiche. 
And the thing that's amazing, listeners, is actually um, Alexandra Cropanzano Gatto, um, reading the book, you, you just automatically trust what you're writing, which is really, especially if people are nervous about baking. It's a, you, know, you, you just have that sense of being the kind of person you can trust to do this. Good. Well, I do, I you get multiple stars for this one, Alexandra. Oh, good. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you love it. Thank you. My pleasure. Are we done, love? That's it, yeah. Yeah? Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, Lauren Thomas, um, I was a little concerned about our scheduled interview of talking about your book, The Modern Hippie Table. Um, With all the storms and the nasty weather going on just where you are in uh, South Florida. But you say it's not so bad because you're on the east side. Tell us about that. Yes, correct. We have gotten the brunt of these hurricanes in the past, certainly, but this time, uh, you know, it, 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 the eye came across on the Gulf Coast, and it just devastated with the tidal surge. Um, there, the Gulf Coast just doesn't have enough, you know, as much room for the water to be displaced when the water levels get so high, and with the high tides, and it just, um, it really is, is, sometimes it's winds that wipe Uh, people out but this one was a surge and it's just so unfortunate here we really didn't get much but some rain and gusts of maybe up to 35 miles an hour which is definitely uh you know non-destructive not likely yeah one of our favorite places got wiped off the map it's annabelle Mm, mm, mm. you you just you just you just grin and bear it and said Thank goodness it's not me. Well, this time, yes, because we've this also time. been in some, we've also been the brunt of some pretty bad uh right. Yeah, you've had storm. some bad stuff. <laughs> yes, well, but, you know, we, we've got a lot of uh, impact windows, and they, my husband's an architect and builder here, so there's a lot of codes that we have to follow to protect against the heavy winds, which we uh, on this coast, are uh, get get see more damage from, whereas the other coast sees more of surge problems, flooding. Well, now here you have this book, which um, I really was anxious to see it, the modern hippie table, um, because I, after years of entertaining, I concluded that such a thing was non-existent, but you say mm-hmm. it still is and that there's a way and a style that you do it, uh, subtitling your book, Recipes and Menus for Eating Simply and Living Beautifully. That sounds like magic. Mm. Yeah, I believe that ta- you know, tablescaping and entertaining and really showing up at the dinner table for your family and friends is, is a lost art uh, it is. Days. I mean, they, you know, they publish these lists of things that your grown children don't want you to leave for them. Did you see mm. any of those? I didn't. <laughs> tell me. Well, it's, it's about everything I have in my house. I can tell you. <laughs> they don't uh, want china. They don't want glassware. They don't want any linen, table linens. They don't want <laughs> anything like that. Well... You know, it, it really, modern hippie is sort of a take or a play on laid back elegance. And it, and it ties into the, the old hippie days, if you will, okay. of being, of not having the distractions of travel sports and, you know, everyone having, you know, 
car, so many cars and, and responsibilities and after school activities and everybody is so busy that, that mm-hmm. it's hard for people to sit down as a family together. And those are things that I bet your kids and grandkids will say they still want or miss because it's just sitting at a table and making the space to do that for your family and for your guests is, is the most special gift. Well, um, I'd like to tell all of this, uh, whatever generation we're in about this now, because we used to spend a lot of time setting the scene for these dinners as well as the cooking of them. And you, you tackle it from a number of different directions. Um, you you mm. do the setting the scene very thoroughly uh, including, I mean, your husband's an architect, but he's very particular about lighting, isn't he? He is. He is. He's actually particular about uh, a lot. The, the spaces that he creates, he does so with intention. He believes that houses, new and old structures and walls, they have souls, and that we we should be very intentional about creating spaces for families and people to live in and so I always learned from watching him create and design that I wanted to fill the the spaces that people inhabit with that uh, intention and so when people walk into my home part of the being a good host hostess I feel is being aware that I want to touch everybody's senses I want to I want them to smell, I want them to hear, I want them to see, you know, and, 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 and even more so feel how they feel when there are spaces that have been created with intention. Right. No, I mean, I, I, are you like Southern by, um, I mean, are you, do you associate yourself with being a Floridian or Southern? Or a Floridian. A Floridian. Okay. So you're not a Southern hospitality person. I'm not, but I grew up in a family. My, my dad's side of the family, um, very traditional Jewish family, and I grew up a lot around holidays that were filled with, you know, f- traditional foods and, um, you know, traditions uh, and, and rituals. And I always watched and paid attention to that. And uh, I talk about that in the book, too. My grandmother, who's still uh, alive with us today, she's 95, Grammy. Oh, really? God bless her. uh, She's just... And and my love affair with hosting began with her because... I just remember going to her house and there was, you know, she'd have the piano um, playing, you know, she, on the self-play. And, she, and, and on some occasions she had a, a piano, someone playing her piano. And when guests came, there was just this process that she was so good and eloquent about. And, and it started before they even showed up. She always took so much pride in, in her invitation writing. You know, remember the days where you'd go to a stationer and you would design <laughs> and talk with these stationers, and I, I would go with her. I already left anymore. There I, 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 there I haven't seen one in years. No, they, they aren't, because now uh, stationery can be done uh, through the Internet very easily. And, you know, there's programs and apps and things you can do it. And, and you know, um, it, it just has taken – it's part of what has been lost in – technology and so I just remember being watching how she would plan anything from a dinner party um, or a family gathering and I just thought to myself wow you know I feel so good being a guest in her home and and I just think I paid attention to that just like someone would pay attention to you know their their mother cooking as I did um, but but really, it was just all about the the hosting and entertaining experience that went beyond the food that was served. Yeah, well, you from my reading, you and your brother were pretty spoiled. You got to order whatever you wanted, even for breakfast. Ah, 
so that was the other side of the family, and oh. it, it, it's true. We would spend the night at my, my Nana's house every um, Saturday night, and we just, she, you know, if I smell to this day, certain smells just take me back to her kitchen, and she was a very simple woman, and uh, just, you know, everything was... She didn't have a lot of money or a lot of things, but she had so much love and put that into her recipes and into cooking for her family. And so to this day, I, I think that that in me, that, that's why I have such a love language of cooking and being in the kitchen is from her. So my grandmothers both played a huge role in my love for uh, hosting, entertaining, and certainly for this book. And now you put a lot of um, attention or give a lot of attention to something which I think might take some of the fear of entertaining uh, away from people who are nervous about it, is you emphasize planning ahead. I think that's one of the things that makes people nervous about entertaining, mm. not being able to, not planning it, not knowing yeah, what's going to happen. Yeah, but but I also think that it's what makes people nervous when they don't plan is when they have their company over and they're frazzled, they're cooking, they're cleaning, they're <laughs> scrambling. And and I think planning ahead is is as respectful as being on time, right? Because when you're late constantly, it's disrespectful. Some people consider it disrespectful when you show up late for everything even though you might not intend that. When you show up to to someone's home for dinner, um, or or your family, your your kids show up and there's just you're scrambling to get something on the table. It's clear that you're not enjoying yourself, and it's to me it that energy comes out in the room. So just little things about planning ahead um, that I tips I give, such as you know if you're going to roast a chicken for example and it's just sitting in the oven for a few hours then take a little bit more time and and in into one of your sides while that's cooking and then maybe make it you know a side that's easier and kind of combine it so that when your guests come you have you know everything's maybe in the oven waiting you know on heat or ready to be warmed up so that you can enjoy your your guests and and you they can enjoy you so i think planning ahead is actually a, a respectful thing, a form of respect for your guests, and it's very, um, it, it, it allows you to, to have fun, which I think then in turn want, creates you wanting to host more. Right. Um, yeah, we, we used to um, uh, put, we had some stuff, because my mother used to decide what she was going to serve for food, and then she would go out and buy whatever she needed for it. So we have a lot of things. <laughs> oh, gosh. A lot of so, so, I mean, like if I'm serving, uh, like, uh, say, shrimp is the first course and lamb is the second course. So, I mean, I can put out a, a fish sauce boat, a ceramic um, lamb, a ceramic pig. You know yes, what I mean? Yes. Yes, you've got all the things. So my husband would doesn't allow for that because he is definitely a minimalist. He is anti clutter, and so I have one set of dishes. I have very uh, maybe two to three sets of cloth napkins. There is no cabinet or room for storage, and that that really is one of the things, you know, another term, you know, where does modern hippie come from? You know, you can create an elegant tablescape and, and serve on beautiful things without expensive linens and plates and china and, mm-hmm. they, you know. So it, it's, um, you don't have to have, I mean, I have one, two pots and I have two pans. And, uh-huh. you know, that's how I cook, serve, well, entertain, plan around what I have. But, you know, you yeah. the, Further along, uh, you tell me, uh, you tell your readers that um, your ideal party is uh, is what six? You said 
Six yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought all along uh, when you were going to all the preparations that you probably were doing larger groups. Um, how do you focus on just a few like that? How do I focus on six people? I mean, well, I mean, you, you don't do bigger things because, I mean, you really go to great, um, a great deal of trouble getting all the courses and the, the herder yeah. and the, the bar and everything together. Yeah, but it's the, it's the art of the dinner party. It's not so much hosting for a crowd as it is mm-hmm. just a dinner party. Four to eight people I think is ma- you know, max in my, for what I like to do. I like to really pay attention. My family is a family of four. So... Um, you know, if if it's, you know, we have two more adults or four more adults, that's ideal for me. And I I just feel that I can focus more and pay attention and that there's just, there's, it, the attention to detail is I'm, I'm able to really focus just like, just like on a conversation. Some, some elements of conversation get lost in larger groups and that, the, the, that, element is important to me. I like intimate conversation. I like dinners where you can remember what was said and have, have you know, go a little deeper than surface. And that's just not possible with any bigger of a group, in, in my opinion. Yeah, well, we, we just did, um, not at our house, we, we were out. Uh, and it was a very long table, and it was nine. And, you know, I mean, we had no idea what was going on at the other end of the table. Exactly. But then, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I'm kind of with you. Um, yeah. How yep. about how about behaviors of people? One of the reasons I stopped doing a lot of dinner parties was that some people tend to be very rude. Like, you know, you set the table, and somebody shows up and announces not beforehand, but right there on the spot that their um, their partner didn't show, isn't coming. And then you're trying to, to whip these table settings, place settings off the table. I mean, mm. have you found people are not as, they're not as polite um, and attentive in social discourse as they used to be? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And I, I, I speak from that of a 43-year-old. So I, I, speak from my own, you know, generation. But I, I think that there is a element of the social graces that have been lost as well as far as politeness, you know, things arriving on time. Um, yeah, that's another it, one. That, that kind of thing. Um, Once yeah. we had people coming for dinner that uh, lived, uh, how far away was... Um, about 35 miles away. They they called as they were leaving their house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it was it was already past when dinner was to be served. Yes. Yes. Ah. Uh, well, you know, there's certainly. Recently, we had a couple. We 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 had a cu- another couple over, so it became uh, with our kids. It became six, seven of us, and their and their daughter. And one of the rudest things happened, in my opinion, that I've ever experienced, which was when we have company over, sometimes I love, especially if I know that they like to drink, sometimes I like to prepare like a, like a signature drink for the evening, at least to serve them when they walk in the door. So we'll mm-hmm. have in a cocktail shaker everything ready. And if they text or call and say, you know, we're, we're close or, or assuming they're on time, the drinks are made. You know, like let's say for example, this, this particular evening was a Manhattan. And we had it made and the, the, the guests walk in and they t- the, the husband looked at his wife's drink and said, oh, um, she likes these, but I can already tell too dark. Um, you, it needs less of this in it, and it needs more of this. Here, I'll, sh- I'll show you. And he, they came around our bar, poured it out, 
started shaking and getting into everything. To me, that was oh, the most awful. disrespectful. It was like somebody coming into my kitchen and trying, you know, putting my oven mitts on and saying, you know, <laughs> I'm taking over. So, but you know what I do? They, first of all, they don't get an invite back typically. And second yeah. of all, I never, I try not to let those things take away from my love affair of hosting because more times than not, people are so grateful. And, uh-huh. and a lot of times they haven't felt that way or as special as when they come over here. So it's almost, I find the opposite. When you show a little bit of respect and attention and put that special touch at everyone's plate, like a sprig of the herbs that you're cooking with uh, um, or some, something from nature. We've got a lot of uh, palm fronds in our yard and sea grapes from where we live. And so a lot of times I'll, I'll adorn the tables with that or a little rosebud in front of each person. And people just feel so special, and I, I get so much joy out of that. So I try to focus on those times. <laughs> yeah, well, I, <laughs> my, my, um, my mother had sayings for every occasion. And one, yeah, of her, one of her favorites was, punctuality is the politeness of princes. So mm. then take that. Take that. Put that in your next book. <laughs> hey, I, I have... I have one little tip on your guacamole, by the way, because you like texture. Yeah. Try, try putting, um, in, using uh, um, um, chopped pistachio nuts and pistachio oil mm. instead of avocado oil. It really is mm. good. It's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> mm, pistachio uh, oil. See, that's that's a great tip because people people love um, you know these days. These days, it's hard because with the nuts, you have to like, you know, some people, you, you got to be careful with the nuts oh, exactly. these days. This is crazy. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think it's great when you can sneak in different little delicious, you know, like the feta cheese and the guacamole or the, the pistachios or even pine nuts, something with a little bit of crunch. And the cheese makes it a little bit, um, you know, it, it just gives that, that flavor and texture to to guacamole that sometimes you don't get but uh that's a great tip well you you do a lot of this uh, twisting tweaking um of your classic recipes um you you get inspiration from somewhere where is it i mean it's not just straightforward routine stuff you've put some thought into how you can make it special yeah, so... Hey, some what about the, meatloaf? Being able to make meatloaf special, that's something. <laughs> right. Well, the meatloaf recipe is a, is a generation's recipe from my family. And, you know, the little tweaks, for example, a lot of people put breadcrumbs in their uh, meatloaf. And my great-grandmother on, on my mom's side crushed up Ritz crackers and yeah. you know, and 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 you just you, you kind of just go. And I used to watch them. They didn't measure anything. They would take the Worcestershire no, sauce and the ketchup and the mustard, and they would just take it. <laughs> so my mom and I went through when we were writing these recipes. We really were tasting. And my my grandmother's um, uh, hollandaise sauce for eggs Benedict with the brandy, and we were just stirring and tasting and writing down and and I would go in my mom's kitchen uh, and and write some of these but some of the recipes also come from our travels we are big travelers world travelers yeah especially your pasta you had your honeymoon in Italy what what better place to have a honeymoon huh yes yes Um, my fish one of my fish recipes in the book was from our travels to Iceland we have been to Iceland, uh, I've been twice with my husband, and, you know, sometimes when I, when I travel and I eat a meal, whether it's a soup or a dish, obviously you don't know exactly what went into these, these recipes and sauces, you know, generally you know, so I would just pay so much attention and, like, and taste and, and come home and try to recreate from my mm-hmm. my sensory memory, and so my grouper with macadamia and grapes is from um, inspired from our travels to Iceland, and um, 
you know, there's just various forms of inspiration. You know, sometimes I will make something that I found from a magazine clipping years ago, and it's just I've lost that clipping, and then it's evolved so much that it becomes my own recipe because I add stuff. And, you you know, so, so there's just many forms of inspiration, but I tried to make it... Uh, for the most part, simple recipes. Some are a little trickier. Um, my rosemary mac and cheese, that takes a little bit more time to make, so I'll make it. Uh, that'll be w- my hard course of a meal if I make it. That's a, uh, you, know, you know, just trickier one. And then I tried to, to balance it with some indulgent recipes and some health-conscious recipes. Yeah, you have a lot of good health-conscious recipes here. Um, you, you seem to like charcuterie boards. I, reading the book, I wanted to ask you, what do you think of this butterboard trend? Uh, <laughs> I just, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm of the generation where I don't resist trends, I don't resist technology, but this one was really hard for me. I, <laughs> I, 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 thought, of it, I thought of it as just like a, vain clogging trend to be honest oh, um, God, yes. <laughs> I, I, and not I, only that but uh, the idea is you you take uh, your whatever the, the the bread or whatever it is and you scoop it through talk about double yes. dipping i mean it's just it's the day with all yes. these viruses and everything else it just seems yes, to me to be yes. bizarre i i i'm not um i'm not a big fan of that trend but you know charcuterie I have so much fun with it you know charcuterie as you know is an old French term and and really just means you know an assortment of curated uh, or you know uh, meats on 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 a board or a plate and it's evolved over time to have cheese and now uh, accompaniments and there's so many different things and now the whole trend is food boards, which I, I am fascinated with because I went to school um, in high school for art, visual arts and painting. And that's a passion of mine. And so I, I just love designing with food and using this, a board as a canvas. And, and oftentimes I'll be in a market and, for example, I'll see these beautiful fall flowers and there'll be a peach color and then I'll see beautiful peaches and I'll say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to make this beautiful food board with um, some fruits and cheeses and flowers that, that are, is very fall. So I love to create and design in that, in that way with food on a board. But, um, and that, so that's where my inspiration comes from. And uh, I'm finding that more and more people have a desire to want to know how to be less intimidated by, you know, creating like that. Well, you, you do a great job of it. I mean, the photographs are wonderful in your book. Um, oh, thank and, you. And, uh, something as simple as a, as a roasted corn, um, you, you really, you make it look so desirable. <laughs> Just uh, how you did, you tucked down the, the, the um, the parmesan part that, and then did the parmesan oh, the husk, the, the husk, yeah. the husk was tucked out art, artfully at the base and beautiful so um, I might point out to our listeners I mean there's so many more things we could talk about uh, I think I'm going to try your Brussels sprouts because I finding something that makes, the brus- makes Brussels sprouts exciting it's amazing <laughs> also ditto your roasted red cabbage with gorgonzola and hazelnuts. I mean, I never yes. know. We always have a red cabbage in the freezer for some reason. Yes. Well, <laughs> but, people uh, use the cabbage as, as braised red cabbage. It's just people stick to traditional ways of cooking vegetables. And I find that even adding a little bit of citrus zest or, um, you know, in the case of the, bals- or the uh, Brussels sprouts, some balsamic, um, some balsamic glaze to you know to it adds a little bit of that sweetness to the to the Brussels. It's just I, I like being creative with vegetables because my kids I grew up hating green vegetables because oftentimes you know it, as as good of a cook as my mother was sometimes the the, the vegetables were just 
the green beans or um, I remember yeah, my yeah. dad, he, he would just, you know, a can of lima beans and I, you grow up oh, on yeah. that and, and then yeah. you think, okay, no wonder I don't like green vegetables, but my kids love them because I like to add spices and flavor and sometimes I saute and sometimes I steam and so, yeah, I try, I try to break it up and, uh, you know, traditional side vegetable dishes. Uh, another note, just one final note here to, um, in addition to all these good tips on entertaining and setting the stage for a, a good time with, with family and friends, uh, you also have, um, and, and of course the wonderful recipes, creative uh, recipes, you also um, break down sections in the book for special menus, for special occasions, which people should find very, very useful. Um, uh, listeners, um, if, if you haven't entertained for a while, I think you'll get your salivating started with the modern hippie table. Um, and thank you, Lauren Thomas, dear author, for talking to us about it. Oh, thank you, Ann and Peter, for having me.